being at the White House really is an exercise in entrepreneurship. The whole, almost, not the entire, but almost the entire structure gets revamped every four to eight years. And so you're really starting from a very small, scrappy team that has a lot of responsibility that has to figure out and build the plane as you're flying it. Welcome to 20 Minute Leaders. Just sit back, relax, and learn from the leaders of today. It's a journey. Each one is different, unique, inspiring. Let's get started. This episode is powered by Jay Ventures, a community-driven VC fund in Silicon Valley in partnership with Loomi Tech and sponsored by Hippo Insurance, Turing, Upwest Labs, and Hillel at Stanford. Nothing is more important than safety. Meet Quinn Fitzgerald, co-founder of Flare. Quinn is an entrepreneur, advocate, and co-founder of Flare. Founded in 2016, the company was created from a passion for innovation, breaking down stereotypes and her personal experience with assault. She attended the College of the Holy Cross, where her passions led her to be the first person to design her own major in conflict resolution. Quinn later attended Harvard Business School, where she met her co-founder, Sarah Dickhouse de Zaraga. She previously served as the Assistant Director of the White House Business Council during the Obama administration. She currently resides in Boston. Gwen Fitzgerald, welcome to 20 Minute Leaders. How are you today? All the way from Boston, right? Yeah, I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. I get to meet people from all, from, from everywhere. This is awesome. I'm sitting in Tel Aviv and today I already talked to people in, in Bolivia, in Boston, New York, and in Tel Aviv, uh, but on Zoom. Uh, Quinn, uh, it's so such an honor having you here because uh, we're going to talk about some pretty meaningful things. Uh, we'll, we'll end up talking about safety and what you're doing with Flair, but, but the journey of getting there is, is just as important, if not more important, uh, with Harvard Business School in between and being on the White House Business Council in between. Uh, so, uh, you know, take me back and how, what, what is it like, you know, being in the White House Business Council? What does that even entail? And why do you, why do you go there? So a lot of people go to the White House because they believe in making a difference in not just making a difference for themselves, but making a difference for other people. And that was definitely the case during the Obama administration. It was a really cool environment to be in, surrounded by, frankly, a lot of young people because we're workhorses. And so, as you can imagine, a job at the White House is very demanding. So a lot of other young people who are just fully invested. Every job that I've ever had in my life has not just been a job. It's really been a part of my identity and the way that I see the world and trying to progress and make the world a better place for a lot of people. So I was on the White House Business Council, which is basically like a proverbial front door to the White House, uh, making connections between the private sector and the administration. It's a team of only four people and our purview is the entire private sector. So as you can imagine, it's a lot of really interesting topics that you get to learn about and participate in. And near the end of my time there, what we started to learn was that you go to the White House because you want to create a change and you get there and you have jurisdiction and say over a lot of how the government participates, but not everything is entirely up to you. There's a lot of laws um, that make it so that you have to get things approved or make your purview constrained. And so what we realized is to have the biggest impact that we could, we needed to work with people that had their own purview, the private sector, 
And so a lot of the markings of success for any of the policies that the president was doing was to get the private sector involved in those policies, have them make pledges, have them also do it in tandem so that we could have the most impact that we could. So a lot of what we did was setting up public-private partnerships and getting people to understand why the president was making the policies that he was making, but then also understanding what the private sector needs were and bringing that back to the government. Can, can you give me a tangible example of, of, a, of a policy or a topic that you know, starts from the government and, and now, because what I'm hearing is, you know, this is, you know, as if like the United States is one big organization and now you have, you know, the CEO makes a decision and now you have to actually go and, you know, get champions across the, across the, the real workforce to buy into that and, and, and then support it in front of others who might not necessarily even support it. So, so what are some of the things that you were working on that made use of this now partnership between the public and the private sector? I mean, frankly, the, the list is endless. So I, I'm going to give you two different examples because it shows the, the diversity that exists in the kind of work that the private sector and the government is doing together. So one is, you remember the Ebola crisis? Oh, yeah. So when the Ebola crisis happened, um, we did a lot of work with companies that have like medical skills that could have an impact on the Ebola crisis. Another example is there's a lot of policies around working families and women in the workplace. And the government can set up laws that relate to government employees. And they can try to, with the help of Congress, change laws that affect people, like, for example, minimum wage and pay time off. But at the same time, those things take some time. So at the same time, you can get the private sector to pledge to give a certain amount of paid time off for new moms and new dads, right? And to help kind of make people realize that it's not just new moms who need time off, it's also new dads, and that that should be equitable because both parents, and to be frank, it could be two moms and two dads, have that responsibility. And so it do Tangibly, really, you were just onboarding your first customers, really, right? I mean, you're, you're taking a product, and saying, "Let's get our first people to buy into this." We'll sh and, and we'll get we'll have case studies, and we'll be able to then, you know, have that uh, that you know butterfly effect, that snowball effect on, on on the population. And so, you go to Harvard Business School, and I don't even have to ask to know that it was a, a life changing experience. Uh, one that, that hopefully one day uh, I'll, I'll have the privilege of experiencing. Uh, but but really, what I'm what I'm curious to transition to is is this idea of safety. You converge on on a company called Flare that you co-founded, and and you're dealing with with the notion of safety in in pretty unique way. So tell me a little bit about what led you to start Flare and what and what is Flare. Yeah, I definitely want to get into that. But before I do, something that you said really sparked something that I believe in. And that transition from the government to a startup is something that you wouldn't think is a normal transition, but I actually see a lot of people doing it. A lot of my colleagues from the White House now are going to start their own thing. And I, I think that it's fundamentally because I believe that being an entrepreneur is not a job. It's an approach to how you tackle life and problems. And I never, when I was working in the government, thought that I was an entrepreneur. 
I thought like, oh, that's so cool, but that could never be me. And then I went to business school, which felt like a huge transition in its own. And I got there and making that jump to entrepreneur felt even bigger. And so I didn't call myself an entrepreneur until I found something that really spoke to me here, right in my heart. And then I couldn't let go of. And that passion that I had for the, solving this problem, because it relates to my own personal experience, is what drove me to start my own thing for an idea that I could never put down. Literally, I was in the desert in Namibia thinking about it. And I was like, that's a sign. And it was finding that thing that I then started acting on and then started calling myself an entrepreneur. And I remember I had this epiphany like a couple months in. And I was like, wait a second this isn't a job. Like I have been an entrepreneur. I was a little kid who started my own lemonade stand so that I could make money by myself. Um, my dad describes this one story of like, obviously I love food. So like one story of this time where I like constructed this like tower that I could climb up to in the kitchen to get the food that I wanted from the top cabinet. And he came in and he was like, Oh my God, you could have, you could have fallen. And I realized that being at the White House really is an exercise in entrepreneurship. The whole, almost, not the entire, but almost the entire structure gets revamped every four to eight years. And so you're really starting from a very small, scrappy team that has a lot of responsibility that has to figure out and build the plane as you're flying it. And so it made me realize that a lot of the skills that I needed for entrepreneurship and for starting Flare were the same things that I had practiced. And it wasn't just, okay, this is my job and I'm going to create this thing now. It was more of a mindset of seeing a problem, recognizing that it's a problem, saying, hey, that can be done better, but not stopping at that idea saying, hey, I, I could do that better. I could make that better. Or you can make that better. How do we do that? How do we come together and actually solve this? That's what I think entrepreneurship is. And so I fundamentally believe that entrepreneurship is not a profession. It's a way of life and that anybody can do it, whether or not you're in a big company, a small company, a nonprofit, you have your own boutique, for example. All of that is this approach that you take. So that's my rant that I went off of that you inspired uh, in your transition from the government to Flair. I, I love it. And uh, I know I just love it. That, that is the essence of entrepreneurship. It's not, you know, it's not a job. It's not a, it's not a title. It's, it's a mindset. It's a feeling inside that, you know, we, 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 and being a change maker and tackling every single problem with the entrepreneurial mindset. It's not just tackling your startups problem in one mindset and then the rest of life in a different way. It's constantly everything that we get thrown at us we think in the entrepreneurial way. And, and I think that that's at the end what, what makes entrepreneurship so exciting because it's just problem solving, really. That, that's what it comes down to. Yeah. Quinn, I have and to exhausting. Talk about and exhausting. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Quinn, safety, flair. And, and we have to start, if you're comfortable, of course, with a personal experience because that, it makes sense that a company like Flair would be triggered from something like that. Yeah. So, Flair was born out of my own personal experience with Assault and my co-founder's experience. But what we soon realized was that safety is much bigger than sexual assault. It doesn't have a gender. It doesn't have an age. It affects literally everybody. And for the longest time, 
It has been run by these people who, quite frankly, don't experience the situations as much as we do. And so they've been talking about the stereotypes of what you think about safety, right? You're walking down a dark alley and somebody grabs you and it's a stranger, a stranger danger. But the reality is, is that more than 70% of assaults happen with somebody you know in a familiar place. And safety isn't just about assaults. It's about your health. It's about getting access to people when you need help. It's about not feeling alone when you're alone, knowing that you have a community and a safety net and a network of people who care about you, who will call you, who will come to your location or who will call the authorities in emergency response on your behalf. And so my co-founder and I developed a technology platform. It's made up of a mobile app and first safety jewelry. So they look like this for everybody who's watching via video. Uh, For those who aren't, you can go to getflare, G-E-T-F-L-A-R-E.com. Yep, promo. (laughs) And it's a really discreet bracelet. It actually looks like jewelry, not like technology. But yeah, but there's a little, you can barely see it. There's a little technology module right in here with a button underneath and between your wrist and the jewelry. And there's a button there where you can activate a bunch of different features because safety is deeply personal. You know, Michael, if you and I were in the same situation, we would have different reactions and different things that we would want to have happen at different times. So our focus is on providing people with options so that they can decide what's right for them in the moment. So you can alert your friends, send them your location via text message, ask them to check in on you. If you're at a bar with your friend, which hopefully we will all be in in a few months from now, um, you can send them a signal so that they know to come and interrupt a conversation if you're not feeling comfortable and you feel trapped, not sure how to get out of it. You can also get a phone call, uh, an incoming phone call, and there's a voice on the other end. There's actually 10 different options, actually more than 10 options that you can choose to. It's a recording, and it sounds like your roommate saying, hey, I really need to come home, or your coworker saying, where are you? You're missing this meeting. It gives you an excuse that you need in case you don't want to involve anybody else and have to explain why you felt like you needed an out. Or you can uh, send a message to emergency response with your active location. All from the press of a button and nobody has to know that you pushed it. It's 2021. We have almost autonomous vehicles. We are going to Mars. We are, uh, you know, growing uh, meat in a lab. How is this not a thing? Like, it makes perfect sense to me. It makes obvious sense that, we, that, you know, it's the basis of, you know, if we're talking about Maslow's pyramid of needs, you know, safety, feeling safe and secure is like the number, one of the top things that we need just after food mm-hmm. and, and the air, perhaps. Why are not as many people working on this? Why is it 2021 and only now I finally meet a startup that is, that is working on, on these smart wearable devices that can provide us with this sense of safety? Yeah. Frankly, it's about damn time. There are millions of people that are affected by their safety every single day. It's not an emergency one-off. It's how do I, like, where am I going? How am I getting there? What am I wearing? Who do I know that's going to be there? 
How do I reach out to people? Will I have service? It's all of these questions that we just kind of consider to be a part of our lives because that's the reality that we're operating in. But it, it doesn't have to be that way. And what really gets me is that so many people hold back from bringing their full selves to a situation, from going to a work conference, from going to an event, because they're worried about what their safety will be. And they're worried about somebody specific there who has made them feel uncomfortable, maybe intentionally, maybe not intentionally, and how to handle that. That shouldn't be the case. Like, Imagine a world where you didn't have to think about your safety every day. What could you do? How could you bring your full self to those situations? And what goals would you accomplish? That's what I think the real value of safety is, not just the avoidance of trauma and the avoidance of violence, even though those are very big parts of it. And to be frank with you, I don't know why, because we're not the first people. To, you know, I'll be the first to tell you that flair is not the only tool to use for your safety. It is a huge problem that needs to be tackled from so many different angles. And there are so many people, there are literally millions of people who have been working on this issue because it affects them so deeply from a variety of different angles. And the fact that we haven't made as much progress as we deserve is astounding. It's why we partner with a lot of really great organizations that tackle laws, that tackle victim services, that tackle cultural change and uh, shifting norms. But part of it has to do with silencing people like people often ask me like oh why are the numbers so worse right now like why is it that one in five women in the u.s are assaulted or one in four in college and one in three women around the world experience violence in their lifetime those numbers aren't worse those numbers are what they have been um and we have a lot of data to back that up it's just that people are uh talking about it more and our culture has shifted so that we can talk about it more. Um, but frankly, it hasn't been enough because a lot of people have been making companies that tell you this is the one solution that you need to solve all of your emergency situations because that's how you experience safety. Well, that's not at all the case. I view safety and flair as a tool for your everyday conversations, your everyday transportation, your everyday living your life so that you can feel more comfortable and more confident in those situations and know that it's okay to speak up if somebody is being inappropriate because you have a backup plan in case that backfires on you. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. What, what is the hardest challenge that you're going through as you're building up, as, as you're building flair? Is it, you know, the adoption? Is it the technology? What what is you know the thing that you're more most you know concerning yourself with as you go through this journey? Yeah, so that the answer to this question changes all the time. Sometimes it changes week to week, day to day, month to month. Um, if we launched our company, so we spent about four years developing the product, and that was user testing, talking to survivors about their own experience, really trying to understand where our assumptions have been pushed and the stereotypes existed around safety so that we could break them down. And we knew that 
the industry have been operating on stereotypes and assumptions for a long time. And so we didn't want to do that ourselves. We didn't want to assume that the situations we had were the situations other people had. So we went out and talked to literally thousands of people and did iterative product development and testing so that we could improve as we went and get real-time feedback and take that seriously and actually make changes based off of that. Um, And so we launched about a year ago right into COVID, a fantastic timing. I give us an A plus for that. (laughs) And at first it was, you know, is this going to be a product that people relate to anymore? Cause they're going to go, they're not going to be going out as much, or are they going to be more comfortable talking about their safety? Cause now they're hearing about it a lot. And part of your safety is your health. Right. And so we kind of like pulled back a little bit to try to assess that. And and what we heard and what our conviction was, is that safety is more important than ever. The typical tools that you use to like try to solve this problem as much as you can don't exist. There's no safety in numbers on a subway when you're going to the office, if you're still going in like healthcare workers were. Or there's no safety on dates by going to a familiar place or like having a backup of a friend who could come to your location. I've definitely selected date locations that I knew were around the corner from my friend's place if I needed it. Um, And there was a huge feeling of being alone. And how do you stay safe when you're alone when you can't call on the buddy system, for example? Um, And so, frankly, our biggest problem right now is is keeping up with folks who um, are really impacted by safety. We are um, sold out completely and we're still selling despite being on pre-order. And so for us, it's about how do we get safety to more people? Like we've made this tool that we know can be helpful and helpful for a wide range of situations, whether or not you're... Um, in an iffy, weird gray area with somebody and you get a feeling in the pit of your stomach and the hair on the back of your neck sticks up and you're not really sure what's happening, but you really shouldn't stick around to find out. Or whether you like are having a health concern and you really need an ambulance to come right away. There's a lot of people with these different needs and we are struggling to get our tool out there as much as we can because as a mission-driven company, as a survivor-founded company, our goal is to get everybody the safety options they need. Right. I, I think that what you're doing is, is inspiring. And, uh, you know, the, the journey itself is fascinating. And, uh, and I think that that's exactly what, you know, what, what inspires me through this show is meeting these amazing entrepreneurs that, you know, that either they bring their own personal experiences or are understanding that, you know, something in the world needs to change. And I'm not surprised that, Know, also with your time in the White House and Harvard Business School. And, and now I'm, I'm just excited about the, the positive impact you're making. So, so thank you for that, Quinn, for the inspiration. Uh, before we leave, I have to ask the most important question, which is three words you would uh, describe yourself with. Yeah, I really struggle with this question, as I think a lot of people do, because it's really hard to define yourself by just one thing. You know, at Flair, we believe that you can be style, like beautiful jewelry and function, something that helps you. Um, 
And so even boiling it down to three things is really hard. Um, So obviously, I think the first one is the word survivor. And that one I really struggle with sharing as one of the three because it wasn't a choice that I made. It was somebody else forcing a change on my identity in a single moment that I had no control over. And to be frank with you, I rejected it at first. Like many other people, I refused to admit that I was assaulted until like two years later. It maybe was a year and a half. Um, And so that one is something that I'm personally working on trying to reclaim. And that's part of my mission with Flair is to claim that word for myself and make it actively a part of who I am rather than it being forced on me. Um, The other thing that I would say is that I am a advocate. And what I mean by that is I believe that your job can be something that you care about and that can make a positive impact on the world. And frankly, I recognize the privilege that I have in being able to say that because there's a lot of people who don't have that same privilege that I do. Um, And my last word is that it's privileged. Um, I think that I'm very fortunate to have a lot of people who are willing to trust me with their own stories of safety. And they feel like um, that can be used to create good with. And I try to remind myself of that every day. Gwen, thank you very, very much uh, for your time, for your openness and for, and, and most importantly, for the work that you're doing. Uh, I, I gained a lot of inspiration and I can't wait to share this with the world. And just thank you very much and stay safe and stay healthy. Thank you. It was uh, so fun to talk to you. Thank you. Bye-bye.